This episode of the American Farriers Journal podcast is brought to you by Life Data Labs. Hi, I'm Mike Barker, sales manager at Life Data Labs. Dr. Frank Gravely has always said, if you help a horse, he will repay you. So we at Life Data Labs salute you, the farrier, for the excellent work that you do in keeping horses sound as well as improving their overall health. We have a team of professionals at Life Data Labs that is willing to assist you with any nutritional questions or problems that your clients might be dealing with, whether it be the hoof, joint, or just providing a balanced diet for the horse. We are only a phone call away at 800-624-1873 or you can visit our website at lifedatalabs.com. Welcome to the American Farriers Journal podcast. I'm Jeremy McGovern. Farriery is a profession predominantly comprised of males, but there are many more females entering the industry today than a generation ago. Some estimations have that number double from what it was 15 to 20 years ago. And many of these women are incredible contributors by advancing foot care knowledge, getting degrees, dissecting anatomy, competing on the top tier, and of course, putting the horse as their top priority. But it wasn't always this case. The industry was less accepting of women as farriers even a couple of generations ago. And there were some pioneering women who changed all of that. In this podcast episode, I'm speaking with one of those women, Ada Gates. She shares her history and talks about some other hurdles that any female or male counterpart encounters when entering the trade. My story starts a long time ago. It all really happened by accident when I had um, sort of migrated out of New York and ended up in Colorado completely by accident. The car, the car broke down. By the time I got it fixed, uh, I thought, gee, this is kind of a fun place to live. So I stayed. Anyway, I got a horse. I couldn't find a horseshoer. And growing up in Long Island, <clears throat> excuse me, near New York, you know, the blacksmith was always the most important person that came to, to take care of my horse. So I, I assumed that that was the way it was all over the world you know, from then on, but that was not true. And, you know, I had a drunken cowboy show up and try to shoe my horse. I said, no, 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 no. You're not shoeing my horse. Anyway, I did get a very good horseshoer, but he said, I'm leaving to work on the tracks in Florida because I cannot make a living out here. Well, I really became desperate. I didn't know what to do. And by chance, I saw an article about a horseshoeing school in Oklahoma. And I said, well, you know what? I'm just going to go to that school and I'll learn how to shoe my horse. And then I won't be, you know, on it that I can just take care of my horse and maybe the neighbors. So I went down to the Bud Beeston school near Tulsa. And I was the only girl with 49 guys. And I was there for two months and Bud did everything he could to make me quit You know, he picked on me and he made me do my shoes two and three times over when nobody else had to do that. Um, Excuse me. I'm so sorry. And so when I got out, I was I really didn't know anything. And of course, I went back to Colorado. There was nobody to teach me anything. I I just didn't know what to do. But I thought, well, I'm going to give this a try. I got nothing else to lose. I didn't want to go back to New York at that time. So I put my business card at a large animal clinic, a large vet clinic 
in western Colorado in a town called Montrose, and they gave it out to uh, people that came in, and they said, we don't know her, we don't know her work, but we do know she's been to school and she can hot shoe. And so I started getting phone calls from my business card at the vet clinic. This is 1971. There were no girls shoeing horses at the time. And I was the only girl, as I mentioned, in the school. But, you know, you're in western Colorado. People are independent. They're sort of used to doing things themselves. So the first people that called me were housewives. Uh, Housewives who needed their pony done for their daughter or their son. And so eventually that worked into um, ranches and western horses and western racehorses. And so that's how I got started, and it was a very happy time in my life. It was I was doing something that I was loving. I was finally found a career for myself, although that that wasn't clear to me in the beginning. It was just every day was a new day and a new challenge, and um, I, I really loved it, and I was very happy. What was it that drew you to horseshoeing other than, you know, the necessity of, of needing to shoe your horses? Well, I'd grown up on horses. I got my first pony when I was four years old, and I rode all my life. I rode, uh, I fox hunted, I rode hunters and jumpers, I rode show horses in uh, jumping classes. Uh, Horses were always a part of my life. And in New York, I had been an actress and a dancer, and I had spent many, many years dancing. I studied dancing at the University of Wisconsin to be a dance teacher. Uh, I had a lot of um, what we call underground leg muscles. I mean, I I was very strong and very fit as a dancer. You're never fit for horseshoeing. But I think, and I also love the outdoors. I've been riding outside all my life. So having a physical life, being with horses, it just all seemed to fall into place. Um, it was it was a happier environment for me than, you know, being a travel agent in an office. What year did you move to California, and, and can you talk about how your career took off there? It was 1977, so I'd been in Colorado for six or seven years. I wanted to move on and really have a full-time career and be high up and, and be as the best farrier I could be. And since there was nobody to study with where I was, I endeavored to move east so I could be back with all my family. I have a lot of family from Boston to Richmond. I come from a very large family, and I was homesick. So I went back east to gain apprenticeships and to establish a business somewhere on the East Coast. And that proved to be a a gigantic failure. Everywhere I went, um, from Boston to Richmond, I knew all the horse people. I knew the heads of fox hunts. I knew the directors of racing at Belmont. And I went to all these people and I said, could you introduce me to your horseshoers and see if I can serve an apprenticeship? And so they did. And the horseshoers, just even in front of their patrons, the people that were paying them, said, are you kidding? You ride in my truck with me? Get out of here. You're not going to be with me. I'm not going to teach you anything. And I got that week after week after week, uh, all down the East Coast. And I went back to Colorado. I was just devastated. 
I had finally found something that I wanted to do, and I wanted to do it on the East Coast in the bosom of my family with all my cousins and uncles and parents and siblings and everybody else, and I couldn't do it. So a girlfriend called up out of the blue in California. She said, why don't you come to California? I said, what? Well, California is a nice place to live if you're in Orange. I didn't want to go to California. That was even further away from New York. I didn't have a choice. So I packed up my gear and my two dogs, and I had had a horse, but I had sold her, so I didn't have any horse. And I came to California, and I was terrified. Now I was really coming into the big time, and was anybody ever going to help me uh, learn how to be a, pro- a really proper farrier. So I go, I start working at the Flintridge Riding Club. I had a letter of introduction. I had shod horses for some people in, in the Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado corridor, and they had lived in California, and they sent a letter on ahead to the Flintridge Riding Club and said, this girl has shot our horses for some time. She's very good. We'd like you to, um, if, if you need a horseshoe, we highly recommend her. So I used to go to the, the Flintridge Riding Club every day. You know, I lived not too far away. And I'd say, do you have a shoe off? Can I put a shoe on for you? Now, they had plenty of horseshoers there. There was no room for me. And nobody was waiting for a girl to come and shoe their horse. And, but I just kept going there every day, Jeremy. And I'd say, got a shoe off? Can I put a shoe on for you? And finally, there was a horse with a shoe off, and I got to put the shoe on. And then I got to put another shoe on. And then it turned out that there was a couple of the rent horses, a couple of the um, uh, horses that they give lessons on, that they needed to have shod. And their regular guy just wasn't there or he couldn't get to them or something. So bit by bit, I just picked up one horse after another. And I just kept moving up through the ranks until finally I started working for Jimmy Williams, one of the top, top, top show horse trainers in the United States. He trained Western horses, jumpers, everybody. He was very famous. So I, I got on. And I, I, I served apprenticeships with shoers that were there and other shoers that were around that sort of San Gabriel Valley. And then I finally got enough gumption to go to the racetrack and see if I could take the test there. Luckily, I had met Harry Patton. You know, I didn't just sit home and stare out the window. I was out every day. I was at the racetracks. I was in the barns, always looking for work. Um, trying to get help. And I did meet Harry Patton, but I went to Hollywood Park and I was introduced to him by one of the harness horseshoers. And I said to Harry Patton, who of course was very famous, I already knew who he was. I said, would you help me learn what I need to know to take my test at Santa Anita? That was the uh, Journeyman Horseshoers Union test This was 1977. He said, sure. I said, what? Now, no man had ever really said yes to me. I mean, not 
with such conviction and commitment as Harry Patton. He said he would help me. So I started going to Santa Anita and working in the blacksmith shop. And I started training to take that test. It's six hours, five hours in the forge and one hour under the horse. And you have to sweat with a four pound hammer. You have to make four bar shoes, two, no, two bar shoes for the front and two hind shoes all to a pattern. And you've got five hours to do it from scratch and you swedge the toe grabs and you swedge the material. I mean, I had to even make my swedge. I mean, it was just awful. I took the test and I failed. I burst into tears. I said, I can't take this test again. I just simply, just too hard. And the guys were all standing around and said, gee, Ada, nobody's ever cried at a horseshoeing exam before. <laughs> so I went and practiced some more and practiced and practiced. I just, five hours a day I practiced. Blacksmithing was hard for me. I was more comfortable under a horse. Working iron was hard for me to really do, to understand. But I did, and I kept, I persevered, and I took my test again, and I passed. And that was in, well, I guess I went in, I don't remember when I went to California. Maybe it was in February 78, I actually passed the exam, and I became the first woman in the United States and Canada Licensed to shoe thoroughbred racehorses. Well, now you're in. Now what do you do? You've got 3,000 horses at Santa Anita, or maybe 2,500 horses at Santa Anita, and a whole bunch of stables, and all men trainers. Who's going to hire me? So... You know, I didn't want to go in. I couldn't go in under Harry's wing. I didn't think that looked seemly or appropriate. But when I went in, because the the guys there were really, really nice guys. They were not ugly and hostile. And if they had some extra horses that they couldn't get to, hey, would you go shoe the blah, blah, blah. Or they'd give me their ponies. A pony is actually a large horse, but. It's the large horse that takes the racehorse to the racetrack and out to the starting gate. They call that being a pony because you're ponying the horse. Uh, so I would I did a lot of ponies. Anyway, Harry taught me how to fix hitting horses. When racehorses run, you know, they're 45 miles an hour. They oft, They can. It's possible for them, for their front feet to come back inside the hind feet at full gallop and hit the hind. The left front can hit the left hind, down low, up a little bit, or up high inside the hock. And when a horse starts hitting, he stops running. Well, trainers are in the business of winning, and I got a reputation for fixing hitting horses. Harry trained me. He gave me the eyes and taught me how to fix a hitting horse. And so because I could do that, I got hired. And when you go into a barn in those days, if you did one horse, you did the whole barn. You didn't have two or three horseshoers in a barn. And that's really still true today. One one barn, one trainer, one horseshoer. So that's how I got work. Harry gave me eyes. I learned how to fix hitting horses, and that's how I got work. And I went on, Jeremy, 
for the next, I don't know, I, I shot horses for 36 years. I would say the bulk of that was um, hunter jumpers and then, of course, the racehorses. And I had a career beyond my wildest dreams. I shod some of the greatest racehorses that ever set foot on a racetrack. Wild again, Miesque, Chinook Pass, uh, uh, lots of names that other people might not know. Horses not quite so famous, but they won Breeders' Cup. They races. They broke world track records. They broke track records. Or they just ran. Every horse was important to me, and all I cared about was shoeing him properly to run to his potential. And I always felt as if I was a servant to the horse. I was just there to be a servant to the horse. And it worked. It was fine. It was wonderful. The money flowed. The work flowed. And I wouldn't have trade. I wouldn't trade my career for anything in the world. It was just great. You know, it, it, it's interesting to talk about the adversity you faced because of being a woman. And I think, you know, clearly from what you're saying, it, developing a reputation as someone who could fix the horse, I guess, would then override the mind of the trainers. Uh, but, it, you know, you faced a lot of adversity and just kept going at it, you know, maybe other than, than crying it at the uh, the first time you didn't pass the test. But uh, uh do you think things have gotten easier for, for women farriers today? Well, I think women farriers today have a much more equal footing than I may have had in those days. There are many, many, many really, really, really good women farriers today. I mean, top, top, top. They're shoeing top horses. They're going in competitions and they're winning championships you you have to take your hat off to those women. But they're not doing anything differently than a man would. And I think that, you know, it. I, I don't know because I'm not doing today, so I don't know. I, I certainly feel, well, I'm in California where, you know, it, it's very equal opportunity out here. Maybe if I was in Illinois or Massachusetts or Louisiana, or Kentucky, I might, women might not be as uh, well accepted. I don't know. I can't answer that. I, I just think, yeah, go ahead, Jeremy. Were there aspects of being a woman that, that helped you at all during that time? You know, whether working with I, I horses or... I don't know that I can answer that either. Um, a lot of people say, oh, women are better with horses than men. Phony baloney. A horse senses your adrenaline and that's and if your adrenaline is up their adrenaline is up and there's not going to be a lot of um, good relationship going on i don't think women are any more kind or gentle than men i think it's a personality and i think it's um it's one's own persona i don't i don't think i had an advantage as, as a woman and i think in the end i wasn't disadvantaged as a woman I think I'm at the point now I'm out in the industry or I'm out working with other farriers or I'm teaching somebody how to measure a foot and trim a horse, you know, in a balanced, you know, to have a balanced foot. I don't have a gender anymore. You know, we're just talking 
work. We're just talking the craft and the trade. And I just don't, I just don't sense any uh, differentiation at all. I did in the beginning. I, I, it, I was very keenly aware of being discriminated against. But I, I just don't see that as being as wildly true today. Yeah, I think things have changed. And you know, I'm sure there's still some level of chauvinism out there among trainers or owners or, or fellow farriers. But it seems that things have progressed a long way to where it is, a, I guess, it's a career based on merit um, and uh, women who are excelling in it, who invest the time in continuing education and so on are viewed equal to their peers, and maybe that wasn't the case back then. I think you said that very, very well, very eloquently and very truthfully, and I think that was true. Well, there were no women doing any work. You know, there was just me. So there was not any kind of sense of um, women doing equal work, because there weren't any. (laughs) But there are now. Yeah. But I think anybody starting out, Jeremy, you know, they're going to be filled with fears. How am I going to get work? How am I going to get started? Am I good enough? And and sometimes I think um, women can be honest with themselves and maybe less puffed up about being good. I think sometimes men hide sometimes their fears and their anxieties because they don't want other people to think that they're kind of a wimp or something, but we all have the same fears and whether they're expressed or not, I don't know, but I think we all have the same fears and it's, it's a great business. You've got to have the drive to be good. If you don't have the drive to be good, if you don't go out there with the attitude that you're there to serve the horse and, and be a service to that horse, well, then shame on you. If you're out there just to make a lot of money and, you know, slam bang, do a horse every 30 minutes, you know, whether it's a racetrack or 45 minutes on the outside, I, I, I don't, I can't respect that. I, I find horseshoers are hardworking, um, compassionate, uh, People and I and I've I've shot horses in all parts of the country and I recently was in Panama and shot horses with the, the racehorse shoers at, in Panama and I've I've been in Italy and shot horses with some of the top men who do Olympic jumpers in Italy and they're all the same they're great you know they work hard and and they they really do do the best they can for the horse. And so it saddens me when I see somebody doing a really, really, really bad job, sh- charging a lot, a lot, a lot of money, and um, kind of uncomfortable with me as a woman near them. I've seen that too. So you've you've talked about the adversity that that we all face, and and putting the horse first, you know, and you've documented several cases of, of where you faced it. What do you credit and what could you teach other farriers about overcoming tough times? And there's all kinds of levels of what a tough time means. Well, I think you have to be, 
you have to be honest with yourself. Do you really want to do this job? A lot of people don't want to do this job. They spit the bit. This is too tough. Horses are dragging me around the corral. People are mean to me. I'm never going to learn this. I don't have the ability. You may not want to do this job, and you better want it a lot because it's and I, re, I also think that God takes care of all of us. And although I may not have had a faith that was uh, a conscious faith for me, I mean, I've always gone to church and I've always believed in God, but I think God was working in my life in a much more deep way than I really ever understood. I think God was protecting me all those years. And I think God had his hand on me. And I think he just protected me and allowed me to go forward and have a faith in in doing this work without knowing that. I don't know. I can't describe it, Jeremy. Uh, I think that you can't do it by yourself. It can't be me against the world. It's not going to work because the world will crush you. you know, the world will just eat you up. Did you prefer shoeing track horses versus sport horses or, or uh, another breeder discipline? I did a lot of work for many, many years on horses on what we call the outside. You know, reining horses, western horses, cow horses, hunter jumpers. I did that for almost half my career. But I really felt because blacksmithing and forging was, it was hard for me. I never learned it properly. I mean, Bud Beeson was a great blacksmith, but he, he didn't teach it very clearly. I think Gene Armstrong teaches forging as clearly as anybody, or Bob Marshall, or Roy Bloom, or Dan Farley. All these guys can teach forging very, very clearly, either in person or in their videos. I never learned forging at all. And it was always a struggle for me. So for me to work on big horses with big horseshoes, big iron in the fire, and these horses slamming me up against the horseshoeing wall, you know, in the shoeing stations, I said, I think I'm out of here. I can't do this. I'm not good at it. And these horses are just too big for me. I really, 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 really love being under a horse. And I think for me, the trim is everything. I don't care what you put on a horse. The trim is everything. And in a racehorse, the trim is everything. There is no margin for error. One half of a millimeter of an inch on a racehorse is everything. So I really feel that the lighter work using light steel and aluminum suited me better than the big heavy horses with a lot of forge work. And, and that that work under the horse that was so vital um, just suited me better. So I would say that, that my career at the racetrack was more fulfilling to me and more productive than it was on the outside. Of those important lessons that Harry taught you, and, and more specifically on on helping the horses that were hitting themselves, you know what what are some of those points that you could share share with the listeners? You know, I used to watch Harry shoe horses, and and he was brilliant. And every once in a while, he would take um, what do you call that spring divider thing? He'd take that out of his shoeing box, and he'd scribe a circle around a horse's foot. And his son, Troy, was watching him one day, and he said, Dad, 
what are you doing that for? Marking that foot like that. He said, oh, that's for when I can't trust my eye. Now, nobody had a better eye than Harry Patton, but the eye will lie to you. And I learned that measuring the foot was the most important thing you could do. And so over the years, uh, I developed uh, through, through watching other people and looking at other measuring devices, developed a tool. I call it the patent hoof ruler. And I can measure a foot and see how far out of balance it is before it's trimmed. And then I can trim the toe, put the measure on the toe, get the number at the toe, and then equal that measure at the heel, you know, by marking it and then trimming that heel to the mark. So I have 50% of the mass of the hoof in front of center and 50% of the mass of the hoof behind center. And it's marked, it's measurable, and it's numbers, and numbers don't lie. And I have had so much success in helping horses by measuring the foot, getting my eye completely out of it. The eye will totally lie to you. And forget sighting down a foot. you got a crooked pattern, and you got one bulb looking higher than the other. You just get so lost, you don't know where you are. So I, I really feel that Harry's brilliance and the fact that a man like that would measure a foot was the most important thing I learned, plus his ongoing mentorship. I mean, Harry never abandoned me. Um, and in the end, 11 years after I met him, I married him, and that was the best thing I ever did. But <laughs> um, I, I think measuring the foot is the most important thing you can do, and anybody can do it. And I can shoe horses all over the world on the telephone, and I'm doing it all the time now, where somebody in you know Thailand or Louisville or Panama has the ruler, and through either photographing or a cell phone on remote speaker, uh, or Skype or whatever line or WhatsApp or whatever. I can show a horse anywhere in the world with the horseshoe. He has the ruler and he's measuring and I'm saying, okay, stop. Okay. Mark that heel. Da, 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 da. And I can watch this and I can help people trim a horse with problems, a horse that's hitting or a horse with suspensories or a horse is just out of whack and they can't get him sound. It just happens over and over and over again, and horses love it, and they show it by walking away freely with their heads down and licking and chewing and their ears forward and their eyes soft, and they're just thanking you with their whole body for giving them a flat, level, balanced foot. It's just amazing. I'm having some of the happiest times in my life under horses by just being the hands and the I mean just being the eyes and the mouth with the other man's hands or other woman's hands doing the work and we're doing it together and it works. I love it. Can, can you talk about that process, the over the phone process and, and, and how you approach it or tips that you have for, for working with others over the phone? Well, I think you have to start with the tool. You can't just show a horse over the phone with your opinion against their opinion. That doesn't work. You have to have the measuring device, whether it's my ruler or somebody else's ruler, but it's just got to be a flat device that measures the bottom of the foot. 
don't worry about the angles. They, they come into place naturally and carefully and, and correctly when the bottom is correct. The goal is to have, and I don't want to repeat myself too much, the goal is that you have the center of the hoof, the widest part of the hoof, and the goal is to have 50% of the mass in front of center and 50% of the mass behind, like a perfect seesaw, perfect teeter-totter. And to arrive there, you clean out the tip of the frog, you find out where that is, you put the ruler over the top of that, and the ruler measures three-quarters of an inch back from the tip of the frog. That's the center of the hoof, whether it's a foal or a Clydesdale. And you look and you see, which here, I've got two and a half to the toe, but I've only got two to the heel. Now, stop me if I'm boring you, Jeremy, because this is now getting a little technical. But No, no, go ahead. Um, okay, so you start out... And, so maybe you've got a measurement of two and a half to the toe and two to the heel. Well, it's clearly out of balance. More mass in front than behind. So the first thing you do is you take the foot forward and you take down all the flares. Take down the flares first. If you cut a foot and then you take the flares down, your foot's too short. Harry taught me that. Now, taking the foot forward and taking down flares is an extra step. A lot of people don't bother to do it. Grave mistake. Do it because then you're then your trim is more accurate and careful with how short it is. So you want an even hoof wall all the way around. So you take down your flares, toe flares, you know, front quarters, one side thicker than the other. You want an even hoof wall. You bring your foot back under your knee, between your knees, and you trim your toe where you want it to be. You know, you've cleaned out your sole. Um, your frog is clean. Trim out your sole. Trim your toe where you want it to be. Now, the minute you trim that toe, the wall thickens. So now you've, now you've got to take your rasp just at 90 degrees and pull that wall back till it's the same width as the rest of the wall. And you put your ruler on there and you say, okay, now what is this? Oh, two and a quarter. Okay, holding the ruler in place. See, there's measurements at both ends of this ruler. And you hold the ruler in place, you know, over the tip of the frog, measuring, you know, three quarters of an inch back. You hold that in place. It says two and a quarter at the toe. Now you take your magic marker and you mark two and a quarter at the heel. 99.9% of the time, it will, it will be at the widest part of the frog. So then you go to one, you mark them both, both sides. So then you go, you... Trim one heel, and you trim, 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 and, and trim down to meet the toe. Then you go to the other heel, and you trim to that mark, and you trim, trim, trim down, and you meet the toe. Then you take your rasp, and you just smooth off the bottom of the foot, and now you have a perfectly flat, level, 50-50 foot. Now, when you do that, and you put that foot down, Look at the horse. Watch him. Don't look at his foot. Look at his head, his ears, his eyes. Sometimes they'll out, let out a huge gush of air. They've been like holding their breath because they've been so uncomfortable. And they stand down on that foot and they go, and their heads drop, ears go forward, eyes soften, and they start licking and chewing. Well, that's all their ways to express to you they're very, very comfortable, very happy. It's their way of saying yes. 
Then you do the other thing on you do the exact same thing on the other foot. And now walk him. You know, if it's soft ground, you can walk him in sort of soft, flat ground and watch him. His stride is longer. His head is down. His whole body is sort of undulating and waving. He's really, really free and moving freely. You do the same thing on the hind. You you take off the flares. You measure. You cut the toe. You cut, mark the heels. Cut the heels. One heel to the toe. One heel to the toe. Don't start at the heel. And, no, forget that. That's all gone. Out. Throw it away. If you just do this over and over and over again, it's so simple, Jeremy. It's so simple. And what happens is you get a perfect angle coming down through the pattern and through the capsule of the hoof. You get that perfect, wonderful, beautiful, straight line from the pattern, the same angle down through the pattern, down through the hoof. And that's what you want. You don't want broken back or broken forward. You want that straight line, and you just automatically get it. You can throw the hoof angle away, too, unless you're a harness horseshoer or a gated horseshoer. And then, then you're doing formulaic shoeing. But your trim should always be the same, no matter who you're doing. Expanding on your experiences about shoeing over the phone and all of the outreach efforts you've done, you have this really great story about working with Panamanian shoers. Please tell us some more about that. Well, the whole thing was very interesting, Jeremy. I'm just chugging along, and I get a note on my desk that says, Ada, call Dr. So-and-so. He has a lame horse. So I call this number. It's a, a doctor, a, a surgeon in, in uh, North Carolina who is from Panama, and he has a racehorse in Panama, and he's telling me on the phone that his horse is lame and he needs these special shoes that the veterinarian prescribed, but he can't find them anywhere. He's been all over the internet. He can't find them. So he said he called Santa Anita. Now he's in North Carolina and he calls Santa Anita and he gets somebody. I don't know who he gets. And they said, Oh, Oh, you need a special shoe. Oh, well, there's only one, there's only one person you need to talk to. And that's Ada Gates. And her number is, I mean, please. I mean, he didn't call Belmont. He, but anyway, so he calls me, we talk, and he tells me that he wants a wedge shoe for a horse that has suspensories. And, of course, I'm screaming, oh, my God, oh, my God, it's the worst shoe you can put on a horse for suspensories is a wedge shoe. This is a racehorse. But I didn't say that to him because I didn't want to just shut him out the first thing. You know, so, well, listen, why don't you send me some photographs of the horse? Just you know, email them to me, and we can talk. So he sends me emails of the horse, the feet, the legs, and everything. The poor horse is a mess. Oh, Jeremy, the horse is a mess. I mean, the coronet should be parallel to the ground. Well, it's so tilted. It's higher on one side than the other, and it's broken back, and the heels are crooked, and one heel is higher than the other heel. The poor horse, I don't know why he, how he can walk. Well, he can't walk. He's, like, dead lame. He cannot walk. So I said, well, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to shoe this horse on the telephone. And the doctor says, what? On the telephone? I said, yes. I said, I said, you're going to Panama in a couple of weeks, right? He said, yes, I'm going to Panama. And I said, well, I'm going to send you this ruler. It's got a little kit. It has a video, a DVD. 
and the ruler and the little marker and an article and you just get this and take it to Panama and, you know, look at the DVD and everything and give this to your horseshoer. And then when you're down there, you call me on the telephone and put me on speaker. Well, he had to translate because I don't know all the, I speak Spanish, but not good enough to really, you know, show a horse in Spanish. But so he goes to Panama, the trainer and the horseshoer, and they all look at the DVD the night before. So they sort of had a feeling of, you know, like measuring and cutting and flares and all that stuff. And so we shoot the horse and the horse can barely walk up. I mean, the horse can barely walk up. So they, we shoe the, the first foot, which is the most, uh, the most lame of the four feet. And they put the foot down. And everything that I said earlier, the head dropping, the eyes softening, the ears going forward, the licking and the chewing, the gush of air out of, out of the stomach, that's exactly what this horse did. And when, when they put the foot down, there's complete silence. Up until then, there's been a lot of chattering and people talking and, you know, there's five people around this horse and everybody's watching. And they put the foot down and there is dead silence on the phone. And then all of a sudden, everybody starts yelling. And the doctor, the owner says, oh, my God, oh, my God, I've never seen my horse so relaxed. Oh, my God, if only you could see him. And I said, I can see him. I see him in my heart's eye. Well, then they do the other foot. I said, well, why don't you walk him? Oh, he can't walk. I said, why don't you try walking him? So they turn the horse around and they walk down the road. And this horse is just flowing. Two front feet, that's all, barefoot. Just so happy. Not lame. Not lame. So we finished the front put some shoes on. We do the hind, put some shoes on. Now this whole, this whole, this takes like three hours because there's so much instruction going on and they've never done this before. And, you know, things have to be done minute by minute by minute. So I said, look, just hand walk this horse for maybe two weeks. Just hand walk him. He's, he's desperately lame from his suspensories. He cannot take any stress at all. We've taken all his toe off. He's hitting the ground flat. Both heels are hitting the ground at the same time, which is desperately what he needed to have done. So just just hand walk him. Now, this is a three-year-old stallion. This horse is big. He's like 1,200 pounds. And a week later, they call me up. They said, Ada, they can't hold the horse. They cannot hand walk him. He is so raring to go. They have to have two men, one on each side of him, to walk him. We have to put him with the pony and go to the racetrack. I said, okay, but go low and slow. Don't work this horse fast. Suspensories are very, this horse had a, you know, a little turned out. He didn't have the best confirmation in the world. And so he would be susceptible to having lamenesses if you weren't careful. And, and the feet and landing flat was critical to this horse. So they take him back to the racetrack. And they didn't pay attention to me. Now, I'm not a trainer, but I, I've spent a lot of time with Monty Roberts, who's a very, very good horse trainer, who's just up here two hours up the road here past Santa Barbara and Sovang. And I've worked with Monty for years. I've been his horseshoer for years, and I'm on his website and the whole thing. Anyway, 
I called him up and said, Monty, what am I going to do about this horse in Panama that has suspensories? He said, Ada, you literally do nothing but trot this horse. You cannot gallop or gallop this horse because he's going to blow his suspensories again. So I said, okay. So I tell them that. I said, trot, 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 trot. They don't listen to me. They're so excited that the horse is sound that they overwork the horse. He becomes lame again. And I just said, oh, my God. So, and I said, well, you know, Ada, we, we think you better come to Panama. Everybody's been talking about you. Everybody's seen the difference in this horse since you've been working on it on the telephone. That the Panama Racing Association got together and they pulled together some money, you know, to pay for my expenses. I didn't charge them for my time. I just said, look, I'll come down there if you can just pay my expenses. And And we set a date to be there for a week and the surgeon from North Carolina was going to come with his family and we were all going to be there and huge. His whole family's in racing. And so I was treated like a queen and I went there and I gave a clinic and there's 10 horseshoers that work at the racetrack in Panama. So we had a clinic and they all came a big hurricane went through that day, but they still showed up in the pouring rain, you know, inside a big receiving barn. And then I went for a whole week with going around to different barns with different horseshoers and working on different horses with them individually. Now, these men get paid $15 to shoe a horse, one five. The trainers provide the horseshoes because the horseshoes cost $15. So the trainer provides the shoes. The horseshoer is paid $15 for his labor. A rasp costs $30. So these poor men, they don't ever buy a new rasp because that's the, that's the value of one full horse shoeing. So they're shoeing these horses with the most dull rasp and the most worn out tools I've ever seen in my life. But they're really, really, really good craftsmen. They're really good. They're so poor, they don't have cars. They have to take a bus to the racetrack and walk around to all the stables with these little anvils on their shoulders. So I took my ruler down there, and I didn't bring the whole kit because they were not going to be able to pay $35 for my hoof ruler kit. So I just took the ruler itself. And then I individually showed how to use that ruler when I was working with them, not only in the clinic, but individually in the barns. And I sold them the ruler for below my cost, you know, like $10. Every horseshoer on that racetrack bought a ruler. They saw the benefit, excuse me, of measuring the foot. Now, these horseshoers are so abused by everybody. The trainer says, do this and do that, and I want wedges on this horse, and I want this and that. And the And I said... I told the horseshoers, I said, the last thing you want to put on these horses is wedges. No wedges. Well, first of all, it's so wet and humid there. The feet are rotten. So you put a wedge on, it just jams the heel. It just smashes the heels. So the horseshoers said, well, we know that these horses shouldn't have wedges on. But they force us to put them on. I said, well, I'm going to change that. (laughs) So I'm down there for a week. And I go around to all these barns, and I go around with all these horseshoers. So at the very end, they give me a check for my expenses, my airfare and, you know, whatever, you know, my expenses. I had to pay for my part of my hotel. I think I had to pay for the hotel. Anyway, I have enough money to cover that. And I have $850 left over. Jeremy, you know what I did with that $850? I gave it 
to the horseshoers. I bought all the horseshoers a brand new rasp. One horseshoer that I went with, his nippers were so bad, they, they weren't even closing. I mean, he, they weren't even cutting. So I took him into the uh, tack shop on the racetrack there. And I said, uh, which one of these nippers do you want? And he looked at me and said, oh, I can't get one of these. These, these, are, 100 and, these are $136. I said, which one of these do you want? He said, I want that one. I said, fine. I'm going to get that for you. $136. I thought he was going to burst into tears. And he looked up at the sky. We came out of the shop. I bought the nippers. He came out of the shop. He looked up at the sky. And he said, Que benedicción esta mujer. You know, gracias a Dios. He, he was thanking God for the, for the beneficence of this woman who had come from America to teach him and to give him this, this generous gift. He was so grateful. So all the horseshoers, they all got new rasps. I paid them to hold horses. I mean, the $850 went right out to the horseshoers. They were so grateful. Then I come home and I write a report to the racing association and to the top veterinarian who I met there, Dr. Castillo, a wonderful man, wonderful man. And everything is pretty primitive. You know, it's pretty primitive there. And my first report was pretty, pretty hard-edged <laughs> because I was so on the side of the horseshoers and so against the abuse that they were receiving at the hands of everybody else, not even being paid well. But on top of that, the horses were so ill-behaved. They were lip-chained and eared and just, you know, forced into shoeing, and they were rearing up, and the poor horseshoers, they couldn't do a job because the horses were so badly behaved because their training was so um, uh, fuerte, you know, so strong. I mean, it was not, I don't know. They love horses, but the training, there was no training going on. Anyway, so I rewrote the report and I sent it down there and I, and I suggested that they do a lot of things that didn't cost them any money, like keep the stalls clean, do the minimum of hoof care, which means because it's so humid there, thrush is rampant, rampant, rampant. The feet are so rotten, you can't keep a shoe on. And I said, absolutely get rid of these wedges. Absolutely. No, 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 no. And I told them what kind of shoes to use, XLT in front, you know, XT toe in front, regular toe behind. No blocks, no stickers, no nothing. Just plain. So I don't know how that report was received, but it was it was a kind report. It was it was polite, respectful to them because they're worthy of respect. All these people that run the racing there. I mean, they're very, you know, high up good people. And the horseshoers, all they needed was a little touch up. They were already there. Just they just needed to kind of know where to put the heels. That's all, you know, just to measure and put the heels a little bit in a different place. And so my connection in North Carolina has been back to Panama, of course, a couple of times. And he said on his last trip, I think, you know, four months out, he said, Eddie, you're not going to believe this. The difference in the shoeing is huge. I can see the difference. I don't see the wedges anymore, or I see much, much less of them. I see heels in the right place. I see horses walking comfortably with a wonderful wave in their bodies. He said that um, 
the horseshoers were so grateful and have come up to him and said, can you get the senora to come back? It's so cute. I mean, they want me to go back, but I'm not going to go back until somebody like Monty Roberts. They got to get Monty Roberts down there and build a round pen and get these horses trained. It doesn't take much to train the horse, but, you know, Monty can do it in about 10 minutes. But they need to have somebody there to teach that because I can't work on these horses. They're just they're rearing up and pulling. You know, you just can't work on them. So anyway, that horse that I started working on in April that had the suspensory, then, he, you know, had it again. And then, you know, and then he had another sort of rotten place in his foot. So when I was there in November, we had to rip the whole foot off and it was all bleeding and nasty. And I had wonderful Life Data hoof play. I hope I'm allowed to name a product, but I love Life Data products. And so the horse has been on the farrier's formula and the hoof clay and the farrier's finish. Well, the foot was like fantastic in four days. It was like completely not bleeding and healing and strong to make a long story longer that horse um oh the other thing it wouldn't go in the starting gate would not go in the starting gate so you know i've been trained by monty you know using the dually halter and you know positive and negative consequences for the horse's behavior it's all very gentle and the horse kind of teaches himself what's the right thing to do um I said, you've got to get this horse. You can't send this horse to the race without getting him into the starting gate in a comfortable way. So I gave him some pointers, you know, pony the horse to the gate and just walk around the gate. And he's going to be all nervous. And when he starts to calm down, then walk away. Walk away. Don't push this horse into that gate. That's all he's ever had is to be forced with fear and anxiety into this gate. Just walk him around. When he calms down, walk away. And I said, do this a lot. Do this for months, for weeks and months. Do this. They did. So the week before the horse was to race, I said, have you put the horse in the starting gate yet? No. I said, what are you waiting for, Christmas? So I said, you've got to get that horse in the starting gate. You cannot wait until the day of the race or you're going to leave it all in the gate. He will be just full of anxiety and, and nerves and He's too big. You can't force him in. He's just, he's 1,200 pounds. So they finally took him up to the gate a few days. You know, they had the Dewey Halter, and you have to go to MontyRoberts.com and find out about how that all works. But it's, it's just part of training. And so they put the horse in the gate, and he stood there. And so then came the day of the race, which was the day before yesterday, Jeremy. It was Friday. Friday, March 31st. The horse had not raced for a year because of all these illnesses and the thing and I don't know what all. So he goes into, they take him, they load him early because they know he's had a history of being bad. They load him early into the gate. He's like number eight on the outside. He goes in first. He walks right in and he, they close the gate. He just stands there. The other horses are put in the gate. They're standing there and there's one horse who will not go in the starting gate. And they ear him and lip chain him and push him and shove him. They're doing this for like five minutes. And they finally, they just shove this horse into the gate. All the other horses have been standing in the gate for like five minutes. Our horse standing there, never moved, never moved. The gate opens and our horse hasn't raced in a year on the outside, goes up a little bit. The jockey puts him close in, closer into the front and, you know, not so wide. 
another horse that was uh, sort of a co-favorite to our horse, uh, you know, hooks up with them. It's a two-horse race. The rest of the field is sort of left in the dust. And it's our horse and this other horse. And they're just like neck and neck, neck and neck, the whole way, the whole way, the whole way. And they get to the top of the turn. And do you remember in the movie in Seabiscuit when um, Red tells George Wolf, Red's been injured and George Wolf has to ride Seabiscuit for him in the match race with War Admiral. And he says, don't get in front of him. Let the other horse come up and get to him and then let Seabiscuit look him eye in the eye. And that's all he needs. And the other horse is toast. And that's exactly what happened to our horse. The other horse came up to him and our horse looked him in the eye. He dropped his head. He went, he went killer. He went killer. And he pulls away and he pulls away and he comes around and he's pulling away in the stretch and he wins the race, Jeremy, by like five lengths. I don't know anything about lengths. But he, the other horse died. The horse died of a broken heart. The other one. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's the joy and the power and the, the wonder of God's athlete. You know, horses are God's athletes. And here is this horse who was so remedial, lame, wouldn't go in the starting gate. He was always fat as butter. You couldn't get him thin. <laughs> Winning the race. Now, isn't that the greatest thing in the world? And it was because of Monty Roberts. If Monty hadn't taught me what to tell them about this horse is too, too smart and too sensitive you cannot push this horse. He's a big, big, scrapping red stallion. He's beautifully bred. I don't know the names of the sires and the dams, but but very famous um, uh, pedigree. Um, you know, it was just, it was just wonderful. Well, Panama thinks I walk on water. No, not me. The horse. All I did was help him get his legs under him. But it was Monty's, you know, training points, you know, take him to the gate, don't push him, walk away. Let him calm down, walk away. Oh, well, the gate is not this big, fierce monster that I thought it was, and they're not pushing me. And it just, they just, I just kept telling them, do this, do that, do this, do that. And and I'm no trainer, but, you know, it's just the horse responded. He He's a tough He's one tough hombre. I mean, this horse, I was terrified of him. I mean, I'd take him out of the stall with a dually on. He, he'd be on his hind legs, walking on his hind legs with his front legs, like, clawing the air. Oh, terrifying. But he, uh, he's on his way, Jeremy. He's on his way. This horse is on his way. That's, the, that's, that's shooing a horse on a telephone, Jeremy. That's shooing a horse on a telephone. Thanks for sharing that story, Ada. And I should mention that this story was written about in 2016 for National Farriers Week. And to see some of the pictures about what Ada has talked about, go to AmericanFarriers.com slash Panama. We've linked to it there, and it gives a little bit more detail on the story. And as I said, you can see some images. Let me switch gears on you, Ada. How have you seen the track life change over the years? I I think it's 
good. Mind you, the same men that I came in with in 1977 are still there shooing. I mean, they are iron men, iron men. And they're still working. I'm not, but they are. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's still good. You've got good trainers. You've got trainers that are doing poorly. Uh, but I think there's less and less room. There's less and less room today for the trainer that's just sort of struggling to get by, the trainer that might not pay you because he doesn't have the money, because he doesn't have enough horses and he doesn't have enough owners, you know, paying their bills. Those people seem to have, you know, moved out of the industry. The people in the industry today, are the trainers, are doing well and they pay their bills. And, you know, that was always an issue. Do you get paid? And um, I think that the, I think in one way it seems to be better. You've shot for, for very big events and you help run a big, big events. And I think one of the biggest is uh, the 84 Olympics. Can you talk about it, that experience and your role and the, the farriers you got to work with? I think that was one of the highlights of my life. The Olympics were coming to California in 1984. They were going to come to Santa Anita. I knew everybody at Santa Anita and I went up to the, to the uh, head offices, you know, with the operations. And I said to them, I said, uh, George, what are you going to do about uh, all those horses horseshoeing? Oh, I don't know. I said, listen, why don't you let me handle it? Well, would you? I said, sure. So what I did is I created a job, and then I made myself the head of it. <laughs> anyway, it worked. We had the 300 horses come from 30 countries around the world. I needed a standby blacksmith in the stable area and down at the arena in case some horse lost a shoe, you know, just before we went in the arena. So I enjoined 50 horseshoers from all over the West Coast, from Idaho, Washington, Oregon, California, Arizona, New Mexico, and I wrote to all of them and I said, would you help me, you know, sh you know, be available to shoe the horses for the Olympics? I said, you're going to be a volunteer. You're not going to get paid for your time. You're, you're not going to get paid to sh drive up here and be on tap. However, if you do any work, you will be paid by the team or the people hiring you to do the work. They all said yes. The honor of being at the Olympics was hum just huge. And I, I got the most extraordinary horseshoers from all over came. And I, I said, okay, you're, you come in on this date and you're on duty today and you're on duty tomorrow. And, and so I had this huge big sheet. I don't know. I, I don't think I had a computer then in 1984. Um, I just had pieces of paper. <laughs> Everybody had to have enormous security checks. Well, I, I knew the head of security at Santa Anita, and he was great. And so we got everybody credentialed, and they had to go through major security, you know, scrutiny. And everybody came in, and they were on time, and they showed up, and they worked on horses that had been campaigned who were exhausted, and their shoes were all up inside giving corns and and, you know, they really, really, really needed good, good farrier work. And boy, did they get it. And Prince Philip was there. 
and Joe O'Day, the uh, veterinarian for the United States Equestrian Team, who was my veterinarian growing up on the East Coast. He took care of my pony and all my horses. Joe O'Day had known all my life. And he introduced me to Prince Philip. <laughs> so that was fun. Anyway, um, the Olympics were really extraordinary, and we were on the Today Show. They interviewed people that had unusual jobs for the Olympics, and being the the farrier liaison for the Olympics, I was interviewed on the Today Show, and the other person that was interviewed was the was the gender verifier, who in the track teams had to find out, are you really a woman or are you really a man who looks like a woman, and so then you have an unfair advantage over the women. So there was the gender verifier, and then there was the horseshoe inspector or whatever I was. <laughs> so that was great, and I got to meet um, the French horseshoers and and then the third world countries would send horses and a farrier, and the farrier would arrive with a railroad iron, an iron railroad tire, you know, the railroad track, and, and an old heavy hammer, and he was shaping the shoes on, on, on a railroad track. Didn't have an anvil. You had that, and then you had, you know, the top French farrier or the top. Um, I can't remember the name of the guy that was the farrier for the team at the time, but he was out there. So you had a wide range of uh, farrier work going on, but a lot of teams came without a farrier, and that's when the people um, that were my volunteers stepped in and took care of them. You know, you you mentioned the Today Show, and, and of course, another famous clip of you um, was from the David Letterman Show. You've always been kind of a, a, an ambassador for the for the industry. Why, why has that been important for you? I might be a little bit of a lightning rod because being a girl, you're sort of a little weird. So people looking for, you know, stories, you know, might glom onto that. I don't seek it. It sort of seems to come to me. I mean, I didn't call up Adam and they called me. I didn't call up time magazine. They called me people magazine. They called me. I mean, all the press I've ever had, was somebody calling me, which was nice. I mean, it's great. It doesn't get you work. I'll tell you that right now. It does not get you any more work. It gives you a little bit of infamy, but if at the same time you can do some goodwill, that's okay. And if at the same time people see on, you know, a public media that, gee, horseshoeing, I never thought of horseshoeing. Do they still do that? So it's, I don't know, it's just sort of was part of the life. And now you're in your role with the supply shop. What would you like farriers to know about their supply shop? I think it's important to support your supply shop. I think it's important to be loyal. And I think it's important to not complain too much if there's a difference in price you know, a 50 cents or 25 cents or 10 cents or even a dollar, you know, well, I can get it cheaper elsewhere. If you continue to supposedly get it cheaper elsewhere, like online or whatever, or from somebody selling supplies out of the back of his truck, at some point that supply store won't be able to stay in business because you're not supporting them. You're not giving them your business. They're there to serve you, and it's a very cooperative venture. The supplier spends an awful lot of money 
putting inventory on a floor at the risk of selling it or not selling it. So that supplier has put the money out and may have six figures of money tied up on those shelves, and he's not running a museum. That product needs to move, and it needs to move at a reasonable price so the supplier can pay his staff, his rent, his workers' comp, his utilities, you know, maintenance, insurance. He's running a business, and he's doing it on a very, very thin dime. I'll tell you, there's not a lot of prosperity in the horseshoe supply store. And it means being there all day, every day, 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. or 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. or whatever. And I just would want the horseshoer to appreciate that effort to be there for the horseshoer because if that horseshoer doesn't have supplies, he can't he can't go out and show a horse. So I, I just I'm very appreciative of the clients that have been loyal to us over the years and who shop with us, who, you know, like all the airlines say, you have a choice in flying and we're glad that you're flying with us. But I mean, we're grateful to our clients and and I just would hope that the clients would appreciate the store and and the good service that they are there to give and and appreciate the privilege of being of service to the shore. I'm I'm all for supporting supply stores. What are some ways, or what is a way that farriers may not realize that their their supply store can help them, or you know, are there ways that you see that? Well, I think. A supply store that's involved in the industry is, one, sponsoring events, is receiving information about events coming up, local clinics, um, uh, new products that are on the market. Not every horseshoe goes to the national events where there's a large marketplace where the horseshoe can see what are the new products. Most suppliers go to these big events and they see what those products are and they bring home samples or those manufacturers are sending samples in with um, written material about them. And so the horseshoer gets the benefit of almost worldwide knowledge through his supplier. Otherwise he's just working in a little vacuum. He's slept his house in the morning, shoes horses all day, comes home, watches Jeopardy and goes to bed. He's not, unless he's on the internet like crazy, but the internet, he can't touch and feel things. When he goes to the supply house, he can pick up a sample. He can get a set of shoes or a package of nails and go try them out and see if he likes them. And maybe that product is better than the one he's been using. So I see the supply house as a great funnel and channel of education. Looking back over your career, do you have any regrets? Not a one. Oh, well, maybe being in business with the wrong people, but. (laughs) (laughs) Basically not a one. Why do you think that is? Because I loved what I was doing. And I had a passion for it. And I had a drive to do it. And I don't have any regrets about that. I don't think I've been a very successful store owner I've made mistakes, uh, made mistakes in partnerships, made mistakes in, you know, who I've hired to work at the store. 
you know, I've made mistakes. You know, that was really Harry's business. It wasn't really my business. But when he died, I inherited it. Um, Harry died in 2000. And so I've been running the business ever since. And actually, we're doing very, very, very well. We had some we had some really tough years there. We had a lot of losses, a lot of mistakes. But that's that's different now. Our business is up 40% the last two years, Jeremy. We have great relationships um, with our clients, uh, with our suppliers. Uh, I, I think it, we've turned a corner. I have great staff that have been with me um, one, 10 years, the other seven, eight years. I have three people that work with me, and they're terrific. And I, I couldn't do the work without them. And they really work hard, and they're very committed. And I'm very proud of them. It's a pleasure to go to work and be with them. It's it's a pleasure to run a store today. I I, I had some tough times, but um, I I really am enjoying it now. As one final question, and I know you you've talked about helping the horse and and uh, uh, putting the horse first. Give me one other lesson that was a very important lesson from your career that you could share with our listeners. I think it's a mistake, and I was guilty of it at times, to ever badmouth another horseshoer. I, I think that's, I think it's a mistake. Our industry is so small. I think it's a grave mistake to be critical or judgmental about another horseshoer, another supplier, another anybody in the industry. Um, and as I said, I've been guilty of that myself. I've been betrayed. I've been hurt and I've lashed out. And uh, Or even during my shoeing days, I lost work to people that I felt were inferior, whose work was inferior. That's none of my business. None of that is, not, not any of that is my business. My business is just to do the best job I can do and to be of service. And I think that, that getting down into anger and resentment and criticisms and verbal judgments is a grave mistake. And I would, I would offer that... Uh, that doesn't get you anywhere. And if you're doing it just to stop doing it. Is it mainly, all right. I mean, you never want any bad communication. I get that. But, uh, do you think some farriers aren't aware that they might be knocking someone else? I think it's, it's just sort of a habit. Maybe it's a habit of gossiping. Maybe it's a habit of, you know, if I kind of knock this person down, makes me kind of look better or I feel better. I think just the opposite is true. I think they, they are diminished. And I, maybe they're not aware. It's easy to be not aware. It just could be a habit. But I think it's something to be aware of and to think about and to stop doing. Just be aware of it and stop doing it. I want to thank you for the time that you spent with us and, and sharing your, your career with us. Jeremy, it was all my pleasure. It's an honor and a privilege to speak with you. And um, I uh, say hello to anybody who's listening and and i hope you have a great day and a great time and a great career go for it 
Thanks to Ada Gates for talking with us and to Life Data Labs for sponsoring this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any suggestions for our podcast, post them on our podcast page at americanfarriers.com slash podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening.